Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Craig Calcaterra, author of the book, Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. The book was published in 2022 by Belt Publishing. Craig has written about baseball for NBC Sports and now has a popular column on Substack called Cup of Coffee. In addition to discussing his background, we talk about why fans need to better understand the ways that owners take advantage of them, as well as how to reorient themselves to better follow their favorite sports. Welcome, Craig Calcaterra. Hey, Craig, how are you? Doing well today. How about you? Well, other than the technical issues we had before we started, uh, I'm speaking with Craig Calcaterra, author of the book Rethinking Fandom. How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game, and it's published by one of my favorite publishers, Belt Publishing. Uh, having been from Cleveland, and of course Belt Publishing is uh, based in Cleveland, in fact I know exactly where they are on Fleet Avenue, uh, it, it, their books have always interested me, and this is the first one that I think was sports related, and given that it was a topic that was of interest to me, it seemed like a logical thing to do, so thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I think it is the first sports book for Belt. Um, Ann Trubeck, who is the publisher at Belt and owns the owns the label, she uh, she said she's been looking for one for a while. She's a sports fan herself, so I'm glad I could be that one. Your background right now, you live in the Columbus area, but that's not where you were born. That's not how you started. What? Because uh, obviously, your background is not in sports. It was. It's actually in law. Mm-hmm. So what led you on your circuitous path, if you like that word, circuitous path to becoming a sports writer? Um, yeah, it was it was circuitous. That's a very good word, good way to describe it, because there was no plan there, really. Um, I, I'm originally from Michigan. I lived in Flint, Michigan from the time I was born until I was about 11. My parents and my extended family are all Detroit people. 
Um, and when I was 11, I moved to West Virginia and I grew up in Southern West Virginia until I graduated high school and came up to Columbus for college. And uh, other than three years in law school, really have never left. Uh, I've been here for most of the last 30 years. Um, the, the lawyer thing, uh, you know, it seems seemed like a good idea at the time. That's what a lot of people do. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think it fit my skills, but it didn't fit my temperament. And I did it for about 11 years and I was getting burnt out. Always have been a baseball fan, a sports fan in general, but most notably a baseball fan. And uh, when I was getting burnt out, uh, 2007, 2008, I decided on the side just to start a baseball blog. And everybody was blogging back then. That was pre-Twitter and things like that for the most part. And uh, I, I ran an anonymous blog, didn't use my real name because I didn't want my law firm to get mad at me uh, about baseball. And it started to get a little bit of notice. And then I started using my real name and then my law firm did get mad at me. But, you know, they let that slide a little bit. And after a couple of years, uh, NBC Sports was just launching its own sort of relaunch of its sports website. They, they decided to build it around blogs, uh, Pro Football Talk, which is run by Mike Florio, was their centerpiece. And they, they wanted to replicate that model with uh, all the other sports. And they asked me, hey, you know, you do this blogging thing every day. Would you like to work for NBC and not be a lawyer anymore? And didn't have to ask me twice. So since 2009, that's what I've been doing. Uh, and I was at NBC until uh, the summer of 2020 and, and uh, jumped from there to, to my own thing with my newsletter and have never looked back. It's funny. I've heard that same story about doing things so that your main job doesn't get upset. I was listening to an interview with Michael Lewis, of all people, recently, uh -huh. and he said he ran into the same problem when he wrote Liar's Poker. Before oh, yeah. that, he was writing articles and under his real name and at least one of them he mentioned his uh the firm he worked for and they weren't real happy about it <laughs> yeah i uh they the columbus dispatch which is the newspaper here in columbus did a story i think in the summer of 2008 about saber metrics and baseball analysis and outsider views of baseball and uh one of the writers there who it wasn't just a story it was a feature with like multiple stories that were part of it. And one of the people there knew who I was and uh, was a reader. And they did a sidebar on me about, hey, there's this local blogger who sort of plugged in with that stuff, but he's a lawyer. And and it was a brief interview. And they sent a photographer to my office to take a picture of me sort of like, you know, throwing a baseball up in the air, sitting in front of my laptop, like the kind of cliche thing you see from baseball writers. And I thought it came out really well. And, and I found out later, much later, that uh, people in the law firm were not a big fan of that. Um, it wasn't the reason why I ended up leaving the law firm, but it was certainly something that was not uh, helpful for me there. So your newsletter, and I want to mention that because obviously that, I assume that pays the bills, or at least it does contributes yeah, to the, paying the bills. No, it's Cup a full-time job. And, it, and it's on Substack. Um, you don't charge that much for it, but uh, I know there's been a movement towards, I mean, I've heard of Substack, but more recently I'm hearing it more because more and more blogger, people who started as bloggers are are over there now, and it has the ability to, to get people out there. So uh, when did you start Cup of Coffee, or is that the one that actually started when you were working for NBC, or, or where, does, where does Cup of Coffee fit into your work? Yeah, that... That came later. That was uh, the the blog that I had way back in 2007, 2008 was called Shysterball of all things. And it was on, yeah, it, it, dumb name, but uh, 
I had had a, a legal blog that I that I had run under an anonymous name called Shyster, which you know not exactly the most delicate word possible, but that's what it was called. Um, that you could have away. called it Dewey Cheatham and How, but that I know, right? So yeah, any of those any of those uh, lawyer terms would have worked, but uh, that that went defunct. And then uh, in 2020, NBC they they basically cut like you know a huge swath of employees, and I was one of them. They decided they didn't need a, a baseball website anymore, and so the next day I or just a TV station couple, and <laughs> or yeah, a TV network went away. They they did a lot of things to their sports with which I don't necessarily agree, but hey, not my company anymore. Um, but I, I wanted to keep doing what I was doing. I think I had a, a, you know, I thought at the time anyway, I had a pretty loyal core readership that might follow me and might be willing to pay to read my stuff. And, uh, so I started the Substack newsletter in August, 2020 and, uh, yeah, it immediately worked. I, I was very lucky, uh, in that a, a significant number of people that were my daily readers at NBC followed me over, began being willing to pay me a, a, a little monthly subscription fee, a, and it's grown since then, and it's uh, yeah, it's the full-time job. It's it's a fantastic thing. I wish I'd done it years before, actually. Um, and uh, I think the the key to it, you sort of mentioned, a lot of you know people from back in the blogging days are doing that now too. It's a very similar sort of experience in that people who want to hear what a certain person has to say about any matter of issues. Uh, will flock to it much the way blogging did. Uh, you know, you can get baseball scores and you can get baseball analysis in a lot of places. I, with with the Substack model, I just need a certain number that want to hear it specifically from me so I can make a living. And thankfully, there's a, a sufficient number there. Well, and the other thing is, is the positives of Substack and some of the other similar ideas, like even just starting your own website or your, you know, using WordPress or whatever, is that. You're not part of another organization where, let's be honest, you can probably say a lot of things at ESPN, but there's probably a lot of things, and we know, obviously, a lot of the things that are in your newsletter, you couldn't say at ESPN. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. There, so at NBC, I was lucky because uh, for the entire time that I was there, NBC didn't have a broadcast contract with Major League Baseball. It was one of the rare times in and NBC's history they do when now. it didn't. They do now with Peacock, exactly. Uh, if you work for a rights holder, as the term is used, uh, where you broadcast one of the leagues, yeah, you, you're definitely under the microscope a little bit. Uh, if you were a football writer at NBC and NFL Sunday Night Football is the biggest TV show in the country, um, you kind of got to be careful what you say about the, the league and what you say about uh, executives and things like that. Um, ESPN is the same way. I think anybody who has baseball rights is the same way. Um, there is an inherent conflict there there's there's uh you know you've got to be mindful of that you will get a memo you will get an email from someone three levels above you if uh, someone gets upset at what you say and uh i got away with murder at nbc relatively speaking a couple times i got called on the carpet but not often um but with Substack, now i'm beholden to no one i can rip rob Manfred. i could rip tony clark of the players union i could rip teams i could say exactly what i think and I think readers, there's a hunger for that because so much of sports media is compromised now. You either work directly for the leagues if you work for one of the league networks or MLB.com, or you work for ESPN, which is a rights holder, or Fox, which is a rights holder. Um, you know, so there, there are a lot of uh, wonderful freedoms when you're someone who's wired like me, who I tend to be a bit of a, 
uh, you know, the lawyer me, in me comes out. I can be a little abrasive. I can be uh, conflict uh, kind of drives a lot of what I write about. Uh, and criticism certainly is there. Uh, it's a very liberating medium to be on. Yeah, it's funny because I was when I read the book, uh, and it's a short, I mean, it's a reasonably short read. So anybody that's thinking it's just going to be page after, I mean, it's a great read because it's the kind of thing where you could sit down and it's it basically in two parts, which is the state of things as they are now for fans. And then the second part is how to change the way you as a fan may operate so that you can live as a fan and not feel uh, like you're just giving up your soul. Um there, there are so many additional things that, you, that really don't completely fall into the fandom part, except for things like, for example, that how many writers and broadcasters related to the sports say things or do things because they don't want to lose their access or they don't want their access reduced and worse. I mean, we don't see it just in sports. We see it in politics, especially as far as in business, where people who write in those or broadcast or produce media in those fields have to be very careful sometimes because if they say the wrong thing suddenly all that nice access they had it goes away or all the nice things that they get from going into the press box and stuff suddenly aren't so nice anymore and and those kind of things and even though that's not directly fan related it's the kind of thing where being totally independent can sometimes have its positives oh absolutely and i i think that's a huge driver of of the modern sports landscape is that we aren't very critical of how the leagues and how the teams and clubs operate. Um, we aren't critical because we're not really informed. I mean, it's, it's not hard to figure out, for example, that there might be uh, an incentive on the part of an owner of a baseball team to not put the best team on the field for various reasons. Um, but no one's really writing that really explicitly you got to work a little bit to figure all the things out about that um because the media is generally not saying things that uh that the the sports leagues and the teams don't want to hear i i'm i'm able to do that a little bit i do that in the book as well i sort of explain it in terms of because we aren't critical of how sports operate sports take advantage of us in a lot of ways and I, I think the point of being a, critic, a critic of sports is not simply to say, oh, look at me, look at me rip Rob Manfred, for example. It's I'm ripping Rob Manfred because he's doing this, this and this, and he's doing that to take advantage of you as a fan. Um, so I think that's the key for, for the critical part of sports. And there are some places to get it, but not everywhere. And certainly not if you're a casual fan. I think a hardcore fan knows this reporter or that reporter will tell me the, the straight dope. But if you're someone who just sort of tunes in for the games and catches a little bit of sports radio and maybe looks at the, the front page of ESPN once in a while, you're really not seeing what's going on. And of course, over time, you know, what may have started a certain way, like, for example, I always early on or for a while, I found MLB.com to actually be a pretty good site for information because there was there seemed to it, even though it was owned by Major League Baseball, I felt at least there was at least some information in the same way with the MLB network. And I'm starting to that. I don't see it as much anymore. I think there's a lessening that major league baseball, like football, which obviously owns the NFL network and NFL.com. They've always been very pushy about how they control things. Baseball's starting to get into that a little more now, I think. 
Yeah, it was interesting when MLB.com launched, I guess, early 2000s or whenever it was. I, I did have a different little blog back then I wrote about. And my, my initial uh, response was going to be, oh, this will be Pravda. And I was very surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised that for many years, uh, every single article, they may still do it, I don't know, but every single article on the bottom said this was not, you know, not, not approved by someone at Major League Baseball. They, they kept a, a definite division up between the media operation and the, and the league's business operation. Um, they hired a lot of very solid reporters. They still have a lot of solid reporters there. Um, and I think what drove that was not necessarily some altruistic journalistic uh, integrity kick. I think it was, you know, Bud Selig and the people who ran the league at the time thought, well, we, we can't be so brazen as to, you know, have this very obviously league controlled uh, instrument out there that's that's doing our bidding. Uh, that That just won't fly. There was a bit of shame involved of, you know, not having an independent media operation. Uh, as we've seen in all manner of parts of society, whether it's politics, whether it's business, now sports, uh, that shame impulse went away. I think in baseball, certainly when Rob Manfred took over six, seven years ago, uh, things changed. And I think there was this very bold, well, we can get away with it and we will. And so there is now definitely a far more league friendly. I, I think the word propaganda is too strong, but once in a while you see it, especially when the labor fight was going on. <laughs> Um, where the league, uh, the league outlet is definitely a house instrument and definitely aimed at serving the interest of, of the owners of Major League Baseball. And it's a shame uh, that, that it's gone that way. But I think they realize that most people aren't going to be critical of it and they'll just accept it as they see it. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen now that the players' side, not just in baseball but in other sports, are trying to get their own ways of communicating because obviously, as you pointed out, during the lockout, and it was a lockout, it wasn't a strike, uh, um, all we were hearing was this is what the, you know, that the, the bits of what the players were saying or, you know, what, what Labor was saying did not get the same kind of press as everything that was going on because the owners could put it any place they wanted. They they had control over the over the MLDB.com and other sources. Of course, ESPN was going to be very careful because, as you pointed out, they were a rights holder and so on and so forth. And the players still to this day, and I think if you go back into the history of baseball, they've always tried to get some control and they always they never seem to be able to get it 100%. It's, it's an interesting topic, and I've talked with a lot of people about this recently. I, I know some people involved with the union who, who are you know, fairly high up in the union that I talked to. Um, the union's view for decades, this goes back to Marvin Miller, um, has been we don't see the interest in playing the PR game because we don't win our battles in the newspaper. We win our battles at the negotiation table. And that was generally true for a very long time. I think it's still technically true. That's where you actually get things. Um, Marvin Miller was very, and Don Fair after him, and, and Michael Weiner were were all very uh, dismissive of that. And part of that was just practical. They knew that the press was mostly going to to carry MLB's water. Um, that's where the connections were. Um, there's still a bit of ambivalence, I think, in the union about trying to play PR games. They have done more, I've noticed, to sort of try to cultivate relator- relationships with certain reporters, try to get its message out there. But in some ways, I don't think they have to. The most effective thing we saw during the lockout for sort of moving the needle of public opinion in the players' favor was social media. When uh, a ball player would get on their Twitter account or their Instagram account and say, 
man, what we just heard in that meeting, that was terrible. You know, that stuff moved it because they were speaking directly to fans. I think that more than working the press, uh, athletes have realized, and in football and basketball, they've known this for years and years. Baseball players are just starting to get a handle on this. Speaking directly to their fans is so much more effective. Um, a lot of times it's used for promotion or for whatever, but, uh, you know, Max Scherzer or somebody just going on an Instagram account and saying that meeting was horseshit, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that's definitely uh, an effective means of communication. So speaking of the book, obviously the book, most people who write these kind of books, it's not unusual that there's so much biographical in them. And obviously that's your case too. Gives you, just gave you a chance to at least have a little biography memoir so that right at the beginning, and you talk about it later in the book, as soon as you mentioned that you grew up a Braves fan, I said, ah, TBS. I immediately knew it was TBS even before later on in the book, you say that because if you're the right age, the Braves were your team because they were the only team you could see virtually every game for that even if you were living in a local area that had a team depending on their tv contracts and depending on the age this if, if especially if it was pre sports regional sports networks the braves and sometimes the cubs were the only teams you could see regularly oh that was absolutely the case um you know like i said i was in michigan until i was 11 and i was a tigers fan because everybody there was a tigers fan um and when I moved to West Virginia at the end of 1984, I did get that Tigers World Series in 1984. <laughs> um, yeah, we had we had nothing. I mean, this was not ESPN didn't have three days, three games a week on TV. Then this was still the time where you would get on NBC, you would get one, possibly two baseball games a week on Saturday. Um, and that was it. Uh, the, the Reds broadcast at the time, I want to say like 40 games a year into West Virginia, but it was very spotty. Um, and then it was the Braves. So I was, you know, 12 years old, 11, 12 years old. I just wanted to watch baseball. Bam. TBS, the Braves are right there. Absolutely miserable team from 1985 through 1990, which was, you know, my, uh, middle school and and high school years for the most part. Uh, but I watched them all the time. Uh, and then, you know, familiarity availability was really the key there. Um, they were just on and that's how I was drawn to them. Uh, I talk a little bit in the book, but a lot of people have talked about this just in the general discourse. That availability isn't necessarily there. Like if your parents are cord cutters or you live in an area that doesn't have a, an RSN or you're blacked out from your local team or something like that, it's a lot harder for kids now to, to just see a game because it's on and they have other interests. The internet and video games are a much bigger deal now. Um, but man, if you were a kid in the 1980s, you could just watch 144 Braves games a year and it was pretty fantastic, even when the baseball was terrible. Yeah, of course. I grew up with the Cleveland Indians, uh, and that was an, uh, I'm younger. I'm a little older than you, but I mean, in the '70s and early '80s, watched you know, living through baseball at Municipal Stadium with a team that, if they were lucky, were drawing five thousand fans in um, in you know July, and that was mostly and, and the only time they'd draw well is when the Yankees were in town or if it was opening day where they'd sell out the place. Um, sitting in the bleachers watching a bad baseball team but enjoying it because it was baseball. And uh, it is sort of interesting. My age is catching up with me because one of our favorite players was, of course, Ray Fossey, and he just passed mm-hmm. away not that long ago and still have some of the older ones. Now they're managing or they're broadcasting, and it's it's, it's interesting that we all grow up with our age, with our periods of when we became fans. And, and back in that time, if you were lucky, you got one game a week 
Cleveland game. Otherwise, you live with it on the radio. And oh, yeah. that's still to this day. There are days where I think listening to a, your local team on the radio it, it has its positive uh, ideas, especially if you've got good broadcasters. Yeah, I when I say I was a Tigers fan in, in Flint, um, there were some games on Channel 4 in Flint. Al Kaline and George Kell were the, uh, the broadcasters for the Tigers games back then in the early 80s. Uh, but Ernie Harwell was the voice. Mm-hmm. He was on on WJR, the radio station, and I learned about baseball. My parents aren't sports fans. I didn't. I'm not one of those guys that learned about baseball from his dad or something. I learned about it from Ernie Harwell on the radio, and I still think baseball on the radio is a better product. I I have MLB.tv and I have cable and I have all that stuff. I could see almost any game I want on TV, um, but more often than not, I'll use the little MLB radio app and I'll put it on my phone and put some headphones in and I'll go about doing yard work or, or housework or whatever. And I'll listen to a game on the radio and I just find it to be a, a far more rewarding experience. Of course, in that case, I like it because even though I'm in the Cleveland, even where I live, which is Northern Kentucky, right on the border with uh, West Virginia and Ohio, um, we're considered still part of the guardians market. Mm-hmm. So we have a regional sports network, you know, uh, Valley Great Lakes reaches us, but the good thing is, is that MLB.tv, the audio portion, you don't have it. It they don't have blackouts, so I can right. listen to the Cleveland game on the radio through the, the the app just as easily as if I was watching it on TV. The other nice thing about the MLB app is that you can now watch it with the audio from the radio broadcast. Yeah, the, the radio overlay is a really nice feature. So, anyway, so, um, but as I say, I, I think we both have that same concept of learning baseball. I was lucky. I did learn it from my father, but um, so that way. But let's 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 get more into the book now because we've been spending a good portion of the time, which is a good thing, p- talking about setting the, the groundwork for what you wrote. When did you first decide that you needed to put these type the, the information 12 chapters plus an introduction and an epilogue down on paper and decided this is something that you wanted to make sure you you got it into one location it wasn't really some moment of aha i need to do this i i think what had happened was when i was at nbc in 2020 i had started talking with ann trubeck at belt she she was a reader of what i would write and she she sort of observed hey you've got a number of these you know, you write about the baseball every day, obviously, but you've got a number of these topics you keep coming back to that obviously interest you and animate you that aren't about the game on the field necessarily, about how the business works, about, uh, you know, how the media landscape works, all that sort of stuff. Um, she goes, that would make a great book. Um, she suggested that to me. And at the time, I really couldn't. NBC frowned upon me writing a book for a number of reasons, mostly because they knew I would be critical of media and business and things, and they probably thought that would be a bad thing. Uh, so then when I left NBC in uh, August of 2020, uh, I like and how I started you said this... that like you had any choice in the league. Yeah, right. Exactly. When I, when we, when we cosmically when mutually, departed. When you mutually parted ways. Exactly. That's a nice way. When I pursued other interests, however you want to put it. Um, no, when they canned me, uh, I started the Substack, and I was like, wow, I could do anything I want. And then Anne sort of emailed me back. She goes, how about that book now? And I was like, okay, fine, fine. Um, but it wasn't really, you know, I didn't have to have my arm twisted about it. I, I think it was one of those things where she was right that I do come back to these topics over and over. They fascinate me um, about how sports work from the outside. 
And I, I just wanted to memorialize them because it'll change too. 10 years ago, I was writing about very different things about how baseball and the business works and sports in general works. And I, I wanted to sort of capture, this is what I'm thinking 2021, 2022 of, of where the state of sports and where the state of sports fandom is. Um, and they just, they gave me a great opportunity to do it too. Cause like you said, there's, it, it's, it's a breezy book. Um, I wanted to do that. I'm not gonna, I'm not the sort of person who has the attention span to write a, uh, a 300 page tome that's going to put people to sleep. It's a very conversational book. I just wanted to sort of, I, I call it a manifesto, but it's only half joking. It kind of is. And, uh, it was just a very good experience to just get it all in one place. It was important. I mean, the nice thing is, is these are things that you've probably written about many, many times. Other people have said similar things, but the fact of the matter is you were able to put it down in a way that you could say from start to finish, this is where I'm thinking right now about these issues with a historical bent to it and your own personal background included. Um, So, for example, the whole first part is the state of modern fandom. And you've got chapters that talk about various things and how the fan is important or more likely not important to each of these various items. But from the beginning, right at the beginning, though, you talk about you're one of those sports writers. We say sports writers, but as you point out, you don't watch football, you don't watch college sports, and you talk in the book about why. And and there are issues that I would definitely tend to agree with you. I'm just not as, I'm just not as, uh, I don't have the same ability to turn them off completely as I probably should. I think if it wasn't for fantasy football, I probably wouldn't be watching the NFL much. And, and college football tends to be, well, it's on TV. I don't watch basketball at all. So, I mean, that's where everybody's differences are. Yeah, I think that's that's the big key. A lot of people who have, when I talked about this book at first and when it first came out, People are thinking, oh, he's going to tell us, you know, how to be a fan and what's what he should, what you should and should not do. And that's the farthest thing I want to do from the. It's a completely individual choice. Um, I want sports fans to be able to be comfortable being sports fans. Mm-hmm. In my personal case, and I use it as more as an example, I was a huge football fan. I was a gigantic college football fan, but I was a big NFL fan for all of my childhood and well into my twenties. At some point, it ceased to be fun, and I was, you know, I was having a hard time watching the broken bodies of players and reading stories about like what happened to Mike Webster of the Steelers and and people like that, like childhood idols of mine who were become, you know, dying young was was really bothering me. And my personal judgment was, I don't think I can still enjoy a football game and separate that out. A lot of people can. Doesn't make you a bad person if you can do that. There's a lot of horrible stuff that happens in this world that we always compartmentalize in order to live. If you, if you can't do that, you're just never going to make it in the society. Um, but that was my personal choice. I can't be a football fan. I got away from college football, not because of the same sort of thing necessarily. I drifted away from that for a number of different reasons. I wanted to be a, a more casual fan. And if you live in Columbus, Ohio, and you're an Ohio State fan like I was, uh, I went to Ohio State, um, it's very difficult to just be a casual fan. It's very deep and immersive and uh, that's the same with any big college sports town or sports area, as I'm sure in Kentucky, you know, I'm sure you've, you probably know UK basketball fans who just go absolutely crazy for that stuff. Um, 
it's it was even worse in Alabama. I mean, we moved to oh. Birmingham. We were in Birmingham for about four years, starting in 2013. And I think the first thing anybody asked us when they when we moved into the one neighborhood was, you know, Auburn or uh, or University of Alabama. And they yep. got sort oh, of yeah. thrown off when I said Ohio State. <laughs> Although there's a lot of people from Ohio down in that area. In fact, the neighbor, one neighbor, actually played for Kent State and then the pros. But anyway, he was much older. But anyway, it was still one of those things where, especially in areas where there isn't a pro team nearby. I mean, mm-hmm. in theory, in Alabama, they were Atlanta was their home market for foot for baseball and uh, for baseball, but. You know, and most of the people weren't pay, weren't watching the Braves that closely. Football was everything, and to a lesser extent, b- basketball. So, well, and and even in Atlanta proper, the Atlanta Falcons don't rate anywhere near as much as the Bulldogs do. Right. Um, it's just that that's just how college sports operate. But I, you know, the whole idea I think is sport, and this governs the whole book. Sports is entertainment, and sports should be fun. And if you are more miserable for watching a sport than you are having fun, something's wrong and you need to reassess. It's, it's rethinking fandom, not rejecting fandom. So in my personal view, I found that I could be a huge baseball fan. As I mentioned at the end of the book, I'm, I'm becoming a pretty big soccer fan right now. Um, I, I went I to still, cricket. Uh, but yeah, same kind of thing, right? But it's like a new thing for us, right? It's a, it's a different thing we didn't grow up with. So um, there, there are different angles to it. But, uh, you know, you could be a passionate fan of football, basketball, hockey, baseball, soccer, whatever, and still be getting enjoyment out of it. It's not about taking a step back necessarily. But if you think you do need to take a step back or you do need to recenter your sports fandom in your life, there are ways to do it. And you should do it because if it's not fun, there's no point. Right. And you don't really talk about social media to a large extent because there's, you know, it's you there. You had to put a stop on the book was only going to be so long. There's about three or four different topics that I was thinking, well, you know, we could talk about social media, too, or we could talk about this or that. But, you know, the ones you brought up were all pretty obvious, but good. And I, and I think speaking of Atlanta, I think that's where we can talk a little bit about some of the perverse part, the state of modern fandom. The one that I think most people were probably aware of is the stadium scam, the idea that we need a state new stadium, otherwise we might be leaving. And I'm thinking of the fact that I couldn't believe it when the Braves not only got one new stadium, but two new stadiums. Yeah. And and Texas the same way. Texas should have gotten a set. Their first stadium was a mistake. The idea that yeah, they, they put, always should have been a dome. If they didn't do it in an area where they had to have all their games at night during the summer because it was the only way it was bearable. Um but the idea that Atlanta not only got one but two new stadiums, and you talk quite a bit in that in that chapter about how Atlanta was a perfect example of how owners and and teams can take advantage of areas, and the one part I found most interesting in that section, you can talk about it, is the fact that more of them become are now real estate moguls. They're not sports team owners. Yeah, that's. I think if there's one takeaway of a of a fact or or an idea that doesn't get a lot of play that people can take from the book, um, and I hope they do, and you could find it elsewhere because some other, more people are talking about this now, is that sports owners now do not make most of their money from us buying tickets. There was a social contract basically in sports until very recently. We buy tickets, we give them our money and our loyalty, and we show up, 
And in exchange, they try to win because if they don't, well, we won't buy the tickets and they won't make money. That's generally been the rule for sports for most of professional sports' existence. In the last 10 years, certainly, that has become disconnected. Ticket revenue is some of the least important uh, parts of sports uh, finances. They make far more money from national broadcast deals, which are locked in for many, many years at a time. They increasingly now make lots and lots of money from real estate development. The Atlanta Braves moving from downtown Atlanta from a stadium they got in the 90s to a new stadium in the suburbs was not about that stadium falling apart. It was fine. It was about they had the opportunity with hundreds of acres surrounding the stadium to build uh, hotels and condos and office buildings that they could own and be landlords of. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, the same thing with Ballpark Village in St. Louis. The Giants are now doing it. The Colorado Rockies have done it. The Chicago Cubs have done it in Wrigleyville. There is this other income source that is not dependent on the team winning. You're going to get the rent from the bank in the office building next to the stadium, no matter how many games the team loses. The same thing goes with the gambling revenue that we're seeing now, too. All the sports leagues are involved in gambling. This is money. The house always makes money. And when you are in a business deal with MGM bets or whoever, you're the house. Um, and then the TV deals, even though people will watch less of your games if you don't win, if you sign a 20-year TV deal, well, that'll even out. You can be pretty bad for a long, long time and still make all that TV money. And so what that does is it changes the incentive of a sports owner. There is no longer the imperative of, I better put a good team on the field or else I'm going to go broke. Now, eh, I can cut salary. I, I don't have to really care about how well we do. Championships are not the goal necessarily. They can be, but they're not. They don't have to be. We can still make our money. If you're Bob Nutting and you own the Pittsburgh Pirates, you make a profit before a game is even played. You have no interest in putting payroll down. The social contract that I talked about is broken down. They don't need us in the way that they used to need us, and they treat us as such. I sometimes think that uh, it's actually, we're at the current phase, but the previous phase before this, which is interrelated, is the idea of the, the small market team, which was always the excuse. Some teams will never be able to win because they can't afford it because baseball is, doesn't have a salary cap. Um, so the teams that can't afford to, to keep players, and I... <laughs> Being a Cleveland fan, or you know, obviously I'm used to that, where the best players are there for a while, but you know they're going to be gone. Um, but the only the only issue with that to me has always been, yeah, but we've seen small market teams win it all. It wasn't that long ago that Kansas City won it all. Minnesota's won it all. And these are teams that will be considered small market teams. And so it doesn't always work perfectly in baseball, and I think that's just because of the large number of players. But... Um, I remember back in the day in football, it used to be one of the, the things that made football different is that many of the football owners back in the day, that was their, that's how they made their money. They didn't have, right. a, they weren't diversified. Back when Modell moved the Browns to Baltimore, one of the reasons he did it supposedly was he was cash poor. And uh, if he hadn't moved the team, he literally couldn't afford, you know, he, it, it was, literally a money more than anything else. And now, as you've said, virtually all the sports are diversified so much or most of them that um, the sports team is probably the least important part of their uh, portfolio. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was we don't like the George Steinbrenners or the Ted Turners. They were always polarizing figures when they were around. 
but they're they're you know I know Ted Turner had lots of other business interests obviously but uh, and you wouldn't have been able to watch they, those Braves games if it wasn't for Ted Turner. Oh, exactly. I mean, he initially bought the Braves just as a, a sort of a, a accounting deal. I need programming, cheap programming for my uh, for my network. But uh, you know, the thing is, those guys bought their teams because, in some ways, they were extensions of their ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the Yankees win, George Steinbrenner is glorified. If the Braves win, Ted Turner is glorified. And there were a lot of owners that did that. Now it's not that important. These are, you know, hedge fund managers who own, you know, made their billions elsewhere. And increasingly, especially in the last couple of years, the sports investment is not the plaything where I'm going to go have fun and try to win a championship and I don't care how much money I lose. Now it's a, hmm, there's a lot of money in sports. It's just another one of the assets on my uh, portfolio that that are going to do well. I mean, Liberty Media is the team that owns the Atlanta Braves now. Uh, it's a the Braves are a very small part of a huge multi-billion dollar media empire that that Liberty has it. And uh, it's because the Braves make money, because there's a good real estate investment there, uh, it, just a number of things like that. Um, that that idea is just disconnected. The idea that sports are about winning and I'm going to buy a sports team and make sure I do whatever I can uh, to win. Just it's it's just not there. It sometimes happily coincides, but not necessarily. So, um, in that first part, and we're talking about the state of modern fandom in your book, um, one of the things that you made a big point about is that actually right at the beginning is the idea that we've been trained our entire lives to root for teams, uh, no matter what. You say rooting for laundry. (laughs) The idea (laughs) that the team is more important than the individual players, and I know for me... I mentioned it before, it was rotisserie baseball that suddenly got me out of that particular mindset. And of course, that Mm -hmm. tended to be the same time that we suddenly could start watching more and more games and see games from other. So I could start watching players that interested me, no matter whether they were playing the local team or not. Uh, How how does the... How do how do we get into? How, I know I'm not I'm not saying that very well, but that rooting for laundry thing, the idea that that we're trained to try to f- follow a team rather than the players. It, it's understandable in a lot of ways, right? Because for the most part, people became fans of their local team, and there's a local identity. Um, everybody in your neighborhood and everybody in your elementary school rooted for the Cleveland Indians. So you're going to root for the Cleveland Indians. And it just makes sense. And that might be the only team you could hear on the radio or the only team if ever they were on TV, you'd see. I could hear Detroit and Cleveland. Yeah, WJR was a 50,000 watt powerhouse. Exactly, exactly. But it was always a local pursuit. People didn't move around as much back, you know, when when professional sports were taking root in the early part of the 20th century, there was less mobility as far as I might take a job in another city, you might grow up and live the entire your entire life in one city. Um, And there's a community aspect to sports. I don't want to discount that. Um, you feel better when everybody in your town is happy about the team doing well. You go to work and, hey, just see the game last night. That, that's a huge part of sports fandom. So it's understandable that we root for a team. And then it's also, you know, if you're a sports fan for 20, 30, 40 years, the players are going to turn over many times in that time, but the team will always be there. The colors will always be there if they have, you know, good good design and good logos and good, you know, history and they, they do a good job in the stadium and everything. So the continuity of your sports fandom is through the team, not through the players. Um, so it's all understandable that it happens that way. What happens, though, is the folks who run sports know that. 
they know that you'll pay to go watch the Cleveland Indians or the New York Yankees, no matter who's wearing the pinstripes or the red or the blue. And the idea is they don't have to necessarily invest in the team as well. They don't have to, uh, you know, treat the players as well. They, they could count on the fans being there, whether you win or lose. I mean, the Cincinnati Reds uh, president, the son of the owner, Phil Castellini, just like three weeks ago, on the Reds home opener comes out and says in response to a question of, Hey, Reds fans are unhappy right now because the payroll is getting cut and the players are going away. Uh, what do you say to those unhappy fans? He literally says, where are you going to go? He didn't come up with that concept just because he had had a beer or two before the interview. He, he came up with that concept because it's long ingrained in the thinking of sports ownership and the executive class. They know the fans aren't going anywhere or they think they aren't. Um, and so because of that relationship, they're able to take advantage of you. They've got you on the hook. Um, you'll watch whatever product they give you. I, I, I don't think it's easy to break away from that. I'm not suggesting for a moment. If you've, if you've been in Cincinnati and you've been a Reds fan for 50 years and your father was a Reds fan and your grandfather was a Reds fan, I don't think that it's just simply easy to say, you know what, starting today I root for the Cubs. Yeah. But, but you can. <laughs> uh, you can do that. If you get fed up enough, you can do that. Um, there's nothing wrong, and it flows into another chapter there I have called Be a Fairweather Fan. Right. You can change part. You can change who you root for. It's hard, but you can do it. Well, that's it going into the second part then, which is the, the how-to part. First part sort of lays out the groundwork of what the, play, what the teams are doing to you in the first place or how they're handling you as the fan. And then the second part is ways that you as a fan can not fight back necessarily, but um, change the way you are a fan to try to, as you say, enjoy what you're doing. I think nothing's worse than watching football fans go absolutely crazy because of a bad call and act like their lives depended on the fact that that kick got missed. And, of course, nowadays with betting, it may well be that case. Sure. Um, but, I mean, right at the beginning, you said a fair-weather fan, you root for any team you want. You don't have to root for the home team. We're in a situation like me where I don't even live next. I mean, I'm probably closest to uh, uh, Pittsburgh is, and Cincinnati are reasonably close. Right, I'm right in the middle between the two, so I could root for either one, but neither of them's a particularly good team, but that doesn't make any difference. Or I could stick with Cleveland, which is what I did when I was in, in Birmingham. But I mean, you don't have to, like you just said, you don't have to root for that specific team. You can root for any team you want. And you, as you then say, you can root for any player you want. If you want to follow Mike Trout, if that's, if you want to be a Mike Trout fan, watch your, uh, you know, follow your Anaheim games and you'll be all set. Yeah. And we have the ability to do that so much better now than we ever have this, the blackouts, notwithstanding, you know, you could see far more teams. Um, I, you know, I can turn on Dodgers games. I can turn on Phillies games. I can do that if I want to. And I'm not suggesting that you just wake up one day and say, Oh, that team's winning. And that team's more interesting. I'm going to now root for them. I mean, fandom does have some, some roots, obviously, but if it does get to that baseline that I talked about before of it's no longer fun, and it's no longer enjoyable, mm -hmm. and it's a slog, you, you're not obligated to be an unhappy sports fan. Um, and I, I think you can be pushed to a point where you're not happy. And some people say, well, screw it. I'm not going to be a baseball fan anymore because the Reds are terrible. No, you can be a baseball fan. Just root for somebody else. 
Well, and then that, you speak of that. I, 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 for a long time after I started, you know, MLB.tv and even before that, the extra innings package and stuff, which is where I started to watch other teams. Uh, an example, I started watching the Dodgers because I wanted to listen to Vin Scully do baseball games. Yep. I, I will I will turn on a uh, San Francisco Giants game because I like Dwayne Kuyper as a broadcaster. He's an ex-Cleveland player, and I've always liked him as a broadcaster. So I'll, I'll watch them just because of him. But that's just everybody. You can find the things that you, you to point at to say, yeah, I'm going to follow this team or I'm going to follow these players. But the casual fan part, I think, is the other part. I think we sometimes as sports fans, and we in the royal sense, we have this tendency of believing that everybody's a sports fan. And I always use the statistic, they say 100 million people in the United States watched the Super Bowl. And I said, yeah, and two thirds of the country didn't. So mm-hmm. let's 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 be careful sometimes to act like everybody should be is a sports fan. And therefore, we treat them differently if they're not or if they're only a casual fan. Yeah, and if the hundred million of those, uh, I'd say two thirds of those people were just at the Super Bowl party and are watching the commercials, right? right. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. Is especially in the age of social media. I'm on Twitter a lot. I know, I, you know just from for work and everything. Yeah, yeah I want to come sure. up to that in a minute. That's why I, I want to make sure I leave some time for some of that. One of your chapters actually fits right into it. So go on. Your, well, you know, you create point. you create bubbles. You hang out with your fans. If you watch in a sports bar, if you have you know hardcore fans that you hang out with, you think everybody is like that. They're not. Most people will turn on a game once in a while. It's a very enjoyable way to be a sports fan. Um, and I think that it, it's probably a healthier way to be a sports fan because it's no different than I'm going to watch a movie once in a while, or I'm going to you know if if a baseball team plays six games a week and you watch five of them you're an outlier. Okay. Most people aren't doing that. Um, but if you watch one or two of them and you think it's great and everything, that's, that's fine too. And it takes away the stakes. It takes away the, the sort of misery that can, can set in. If you're a Mets fan, I mean, they're doing well right now, but there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I'm going to watch all the Max Scherzer starts because Max Scherzer is great. I think that's a good way. If you find sports becoming miserable, as I did with college football at first, I, I found it to be a miserable sort of experience. There was gatekeeping involved. There was shaming of, oh, if you don't know every single thing that you're not a real fan. I found that just to be miserable. And I took a step back and I just turned down the games on Saturday, then turned them off, didn't consume all the offline stuff, didn't watch spring practice and follow recruiting. It was a much more enjoyable experience because I got what I wanted out of it, the ecstatic experience of the game. I wasn't drawn to baseball because I knew everything about baseball when I was seven. I was drawn to baseball because it was really cool to see pitching and hitting and fielding. And you could still enjoy baseball or football or any sport on that level. Yeah, I was going to say that the first year of the pandemic really helped me cut the cord, so to speak, the, the, the sports cord, because suddenly there was no sports for a few months because nobody could play. And when it started coming back, to me at least, even, of course, baseball was one of the first to come back, and it, even though I started watching and I was watching certain teams and I liked watching teams, didn't have the same need, I guess is the best word I could use, that it helped get away from it where I don't have to watch a baseball game tonight even though they're on. I can watch mm-hmm. something else or I could do nothing and stay away from it. So that's where I think you, you sometimes by cutting that thing, it, it, it does help develop a better <laughs> – excuse me, more healthy view of sports. 
and it keeps you from getting sucked into the sorts of things that the, the, the leagues and the owners and the and the networks and the advertisers and the corporate partners and all those people really want to get you sucked into. I mean, the idea, the whole idea with the gambling thing is they want you to watch every single game and have your phone next to you so you can gamble on every little thing that happens. Like the, the, the more distance that you have, I, I think that the, the better it is for you and, and you're more immune to their sales pitches and you're more immune to the guilt trips and you're more immune to all the sort of negativity that can come with being a sports fan. Well, the other chapter, and I wanted to bring this up because I think it's a it's an interesting part because I think it goes back to the idea of sports fans and how they tend to be, in my opinion, at least the most vocal ones, tend to be some of the most conservative people in the world, is your one about supporting activism. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from following you on Twitter and reading and things like that that you are not what I would consider to be a... How do we put? Well, you can put it any way you want. You can explain it if you, you want. You could you could call me a commie. It's okay. No, no, it's okay. You're a fellow traveler, how's that? You're a fellow traveler with me because, uh, and living at least you're living in a big city. Living where I'm living, and there are days where I feel like, where am I? But anyway, yep. um, the activism aspect of sports, and that's the part that I think is probably of all the parts in the chapter is one of the more controversial because. Those of us who might agree with you on some of these things often are feel feel like we're not allowed to state our opinions about it, that if we do state our opinion, somehow that makes us a lesser fan because we don't necess- because we agree, for example, with something that a player might do that makes them stand out for a cause or for something different from playing the game, you know, just dribble. You know. Yeah, that, that's the thing that, you know, stick to baseball, shut up and dribble, all that, that whole stuff. That does, that's not an organic thing that necessarily applies to sports. The, you know, the idea that Colin Kaepernick can't take a knee, there's nothing written in the NFL rules or, or anything about how that stuff goes. Maybe there is now, but, um, <laughs> you know, the idea of how dare he voice his opinion is, is one of, uh, conformity and and it's one of an orthodoxy that the leagues and the teams and sports fans want to sort of cultivate. Um, you know, if you if you are doing anything that is not only helping the team win or or helping advance the brand, you are somehow a traitor to the cause. It's a really unhealthy way to view anything, not just in sports. I you know the idea that dissent is is dishonorable is something that I think goes against the entire point of the United States. It goes against my personal leaning, certainly. Um, and so that idea of shaming Colin Kaepernick and then shaming Nike for supporting Colin Kaepernick and then shaming fans who who might support him, uh, that is because they they want to squelch dissent. I think that's crazy. I don't, I, I can't, if, if you encountered that mindset at, you know, your bowling league or the, the Lions Club meeting or your kid's school or something, you would probably have problems with it. But we accept it in sports because we accept sports as a separate and, and distinct thing where the real world doesn't intrude. And I, I reject that idea. The real world absolutely intrudes in sports. It's part of our lives and our lives are real. Uh, it, it's sort of, you know, it's a huge part of the culture of the country and the world, uh, depending on which sports you're talking about, uh, to suggest that we can't talk about to some degree 
real world issues in a sports context, I, I think is ridiculous. Um, and, and I think if you are disillusioned a little bit with say you're an NFL fan and you don't like the business decisions the NFL makes, or, uh, you don't like what your you know, who your own, the team's owner donates to or something like that. And Hey, there are liberal football fans too. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm going to root for that quarterback because I like him and I like what he says on social media or, or the, the pitcher of the team came out the other day and, and had some interesting things to say about a matter that's going on in his city. Um, that's another way to connect because they're real people. And, and we, we always want to know more about athletes. We read their interviews. We, we want to know about their lives. Well, that's part of their lives and, and their, their personas as well. And I think there's nothing wrong with finding that connection in sports on that basis, just as much as we would about, you know, what kind of car he drives or, or, or what kind of sports drink he drinks. And of course that goes back and you talk about this is the, the concept that we as sports fans have suddenly been told that it's our patriotic duty to support these teams in a certain way. And you talk about it in the book about how the military was actually paying for a lot of these, um, demo, you know, the, the fireworks and the planes and everything. They were paying for it as a, almost as a commercial. And I remember thinking, watching a game and with Kaepernick and some of the other complaints during national anthems, I'm saying, why do we have a national anthem being played in the first place? It's not, <laughs> the country's not better or worse because we're playing a baseball game. And the fact that I might or might not decide that I want to or not want to listen to the Star Spangled Banner make a big difference. We're not playing other countries. Why are we? And then, of course, you, you people who don't know the past know that it was World War II that they first started doing the national anthem on a regular basis. They did it occasionally. But then, as you pointed out, after 9-11, it took off on a whole new level to the extent that not only do we have the national anthems, but if it's a, if it's a major event, it's going to be on television when they do it, too. And yeah, it's going to be this spect spect spectacle. There's a huge conflation of patriotism and not just patriotism in general, but military appreciation patriotism and uh the u.s military's activities and sports and it's not an accident um i mean that stuff goes back to rome i mean that's what bread and circuses were all about give the fans red meat and entertainment and they will support whatever we do um or ignore the things that we do that we don't that they might not like um the military is not dumb um and, and in the post 9-11 world where uh you know the I use the term sports industrial complex in this book, but it's not an accident. It's, you know, tied up mm. with the military industrial complex as well. Made a big point to make appreciating the military and appreciating your sports team, very similar activities. Um, and like you said, there was, you know, a, a big scandal. It was uncovered by Senator McCain and a few others that the military was paying teams to do these patriotic displays and stuff. There's something very wrong with that. Yeah, patriot. I, I am a patriot. Actually, despite I'm a big lefty and everything, I consider myself a patriot. I love our country, and I come from a family with you know a huge military tradition. And the idea that that's not organic just irks me. It's something you should feel naturally if if you do, but not have it be paid for by the Pentagon. Um, and, and I just find that conflation to be really troubling. Uh, I don't want my love of sports to be used to support, uh, you know. Uh, warfare or defense contractors or whatever else. It's just not what I'm signed up for. And I think very few people are, are aware of just how truly enmeshed those things are. 
My favorite story in recent times was when the Dallas Mavericks stopped playing the national anthem and nobody noticed for a oh, long yeah. time. They stopped. If Mark it, Cuban purposely stopped playing the national anthem and it took a while before anybody really noticed. And when they finally noticed, then the NBA got mad at him and said, you got to start playing the national anthem again. He stopped and nobody noticed. Oh, yeah. It's the thing. If, if there was a press release, they'd freak out. And then once it got noticed, the NBA got mad because, well, some, you know, conservative talk radio show host or something would would try to make a big example of them and and we do that and it's, it's really funny i do mention this in the book I, I used to cover the world series every year um they always do major league baseball does these big events around their jewel events the all-star game the world series and for years and years after 9 11 every single one was military related there's going to be a replaying ceremony and then we're going to have uh you know the color guard and then we're going to do this at the veterans place and everything um and i talked to somebody in the league office once they they would not let me use their name but they told us they said you know we started doing this after 9-11 because it was sort of expected we don't know how to stop because if we stop then all of a sudden someone's going to say why aren't you doing that anymore uh they've backed off in the last couple of years they finally started doing things with like boys clubs and girls clubs instead mm -hmm. of with you know the military place things but um it's there's an inertia to it of like we have to do it or else we're going to catch hell and uh that, again is that a natural impulse i don't think so that's kind of a weird unhealthy way to to run your league well, I think part of this, though, is because of the last 20 years where the previous 20 years, post-Vietnam, there really there weren't many major conflicts that involved the United States in any great detail. I mean, there were some, but it wasn't on the scale, obviously, as Vietnam or, or post-9-11. And yet we lived through our lives without act, acting like if we don't every minute show how patriotic we are there's something wrong with us and as you are right that's i think it's one of the things about sports that brings out the most rabid uh conservative who decides that if you don't do something it's because you're wrong or you're bad yeah it's it's a weird unhealthy mix it's hard especially baseball is a pretty conservative sport right. so it's it's a very weird world for someone like me to be in but uh well know. that's, that's the last it. thing i wanted to talk to you about briefly because this is not specifically related to the book although the the overall your part of your life is wrapped up in the book is that you're one of those folks that gets a lot of negative comments on Twitter, let's say it. And you, 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 you do it on purpose. Sometimes you tweak, a bit. you can tell the people who <laughs> tweak on Twitter because they're the, usually people like you. And I can think of a couple other people, Matt Jones here in, in Kentucky is the same way where he's very, he's as, he's as sports fan as you can be, but he's also got that, belief and wrote a book about Mitch McConnell got him in all kinds of trouble but he didn't care because he said this is what I believe and that you can have both you can be a sports fan and also believe in right causes or correct causes and things and so it, it's good to, I think the, the the ability of that you have the ability to pretty much in your blog too in the cup of coffee newsletter say things that probably piss off people occasionally it's part of the appeal I, I've never thought just the kind of person I am, the kind of writing I do was never going to reach such a mass audience that, you know, I'm going to be the right. America's beloved sports writer. That was never going to happen. So I figured I'm going to appeal to the people who like me think critically and are kind of contrarian. I'm not contrarian for its own sake. I, I genuinely you believe, believe what you believe, I, right? What I believe, but uh, just the way that I'm wired, the way that I was raised was to question authority and, and question orthodoxy. And then being a lawyer for 11 years, you're just never going to get the arguing part of me out. <laughs> so uh, I do not shy away from a fight. And at the end of the day, it's just the Internet and I can turn it off. That's the one thing I'm able to 
X out and go about my life. Not everybody can do that. So why not? It's fun. <laughs> I know sometimes that people complain about social media and I said, well, it's because they're not using it right. I mean, if you're, if you're going to be, if you're going to be so worried about what anybody says on social media about you, you're never going to get through life because, uh, still, I, I don't remember who it was. Somebody posted recently with Elon Musk buying Twitter was that 75% of the world's not on Twitter. So let's yeah. not get ridiculous now about our importance. But I think anyway. with anything, the common thread with all of this, don't lose perspective. Right. And people tend, well, sports fans lose perspective all the time. So why not be politically lose perspective too? But anyway, I know we went through a, a lot of stuff, but we did talk about the book a great deal. Um, I'm hoping people reach out if they haven't already. Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. And of course, your Cup of Coffee newsletter, which you can find about by going to craigcalcaterra.com. Boy, I almost blew it there. And uh, <laughs> get some examples of your writing to get a better sense as to um, what you offer. And hopefully people will not only read the book, but... Uh, take you as an example of a sports writing that has a different view of the world than the average sports writer and the average sports fan. And that those of us who might be a little bit afraid sometimes of sports of sports fans can take a, that there's good ideas that there are people out there who are um, similar to you. And you're just one example of, of a different view, a, a more balanced view. I appreciate that, Joel. Thank you very much. So thanks for joining me, and I uh, really enjoyed this talk, and it was a great book. Thank you. And thank you. My great thanks to Craig Calcaterra for joining me. I hope he has opened up your way of thinking to better watch sports for enjoyment. This is Joel Cherney, and I hope you will join me again on the New Books Network. <laughs>